Hey, if you got your Bibles, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to double back on some of the verses I taught last week and then move us a couple of verses ahead as well. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was really seeking the Lord about where the next place we were going and, and I had the impression of 1 Timothy and spent a whole day reading through 1 Timothy and was wrestling with all of that. And then at the end of that day, I felt prompted to read 2 Timothy. And once I read 2 Timothy, I knew I'd been reading 1 Timothy to get me ready for 2 Timothy. And uh, we're just going to work our way through, through this book, through 2 Timothy. I don't know how long it'll take, but we'll just work our way through it until we get there. There is so much richness in this book that's so relevant and timely for us in this day and uh, in this hour. So uh, anyway, I, we're going to double back a little bit this week and then move a little bit ahead. My dad um, was a trained optimist. I'm an instinctive optimist. I was born that way. My dad was a trained optimist. He was a how's your PMA purveyor of positive thinking thoughts. Do you know PMA? Positive mental attitude. Uh, many, many times in my life, my dad would come home, how's your PMA? And the, and the answer is, boy, am I enthusiastic, you know? And if you said, boy, am I enthusiastic, that wasn't going to work. It was going to come back around again. And uh, just so, he, he was a glass half full person. And uh, he was, he would also, we'd, I'd, come to him wrestling with, struggling with things. That seems like a problem. No, that's not a problem, son. That's just a challenging opportunity. And I'm still pretty sure that I've run into some things that were flat out problems, bigger than challenging opportunities. But, but uh, that, was his, that was his line. He just constantly said it. And I remember so many times throughout my life, he would say to me, keep the faith. Keep the faith. And what he meant was keep trusting the process. Stay the course. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, which turned out to be his final letter, the spiritual father in Paul wanted his spiritual son, Timothy, to keep the faith, to stay strong in his sincere faith, to stay strong in his steadfast faithfulness. Paul was keeping Timothy lifted up and covered with night and day prayers. And as Paul did that, Timothy's faith was so vividly in the forefront of Paul's mind that it was touching the heart of this thick-skinned apostle. Paul's not one of those touchy-feely type guys. I mean, he was like straight at it, strong. But as he's praying and remembering and lifting up Timothy, even Paul's heart was being touched by Timothy's faith. Now, almost every time this Greek word for faith is used in the New Testament, it means a persuasion, a credence, a moral conviction, especially reliance upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Paul saw all that and more in Timothy's generationally enhanced, alive and living faith. Paul called it a sincere faith. The King James says the unfeigned faith. Sincere can also mean without hypocrisy. At the same time, a few years into Timothy pastoring in Ephesus, Paul was also very aware of the ministerial struggles and challenges that Timothy was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis from a wide variety of religious resistors and resistance. And Paul knew that the enemy, that, that religion was the enemy of faith. Religion is the enemy of faith. In his lifetime, Paul had been on both sides of that equation. He was the persecutor and the persecuted. And Paul came to see and understand beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus had not come to introduce a new religion. Instead, when Jesus came, he directly challenged the prevailing religions of his day. Jesus' harshest, most correcting words, even his rebukes, weren't delivered to the people that you think, sinners and tax collectors. No, they were delivered to the religious leaders of his day. Right. Including the day Jesus literally knocked Paul 
who was known as Saul at that time, off his horse and left him blinded for three days. Many years later, when Paul launched into his ministry, he regularly challenged the prevailing religions of his day. Paul taught a faith based in internal conversion rather than external conformity. Paul preached the personal faith Jesus had introduced and modeled, a faith experienced in an active, ongoing relationship with God rather than an active, ongoing uh, requirement to follow all the rules. Paul taught Jesus' simplified focus. Come to Jesus. Take his yoke. Learn from him. Whoever loses his life for Jesus finds it. Then abide in him, remain in him, obey his commands, love God, love people. Apart from him, we can do nothing. In two individually unique ways, Jesus and Paul both walked out and demonstrated a very relational faith that overflowed into acts of courage and love and power while living submitted to God and true to the scriptures. Paul had mentored Timothy into a similar understanding of how to live as a follower, disciple of Jesus in the years that they had spent together, 2 Timothy 1.6. And so for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This was an intentional, targeted follow-up to what Paul had written Timothy in the first letter, which reads like this from the Passion. Don't be intimidated by those who are older than you. Simply be an example that they need to see by being faithful and true in all you do. Speak the truth and live a life of purity and authentic love as you remain strong in your faith. Be diligent in devouring the word of God. Be faithful in prayer and in teaching the believers. Don't minimize the powerful gift that operates in your life. Make all of this your constant meditation and make it real with your life. So everyone can see that you are moving forward. Give careful attention to your spiritual life and every cherished truth you teach. For living what you preach will then release even more abundant life inside of you and to all those that listen to you. They're such powerful words. They, I mean, just they're, they're powerful to read and they're easy to read. But the living them out is a harder thing. And the living them out is where the water hits the wheel. And I think it's very possible that when this second letter arrived, Timothy's faith and gift might not have felt so aflame to him. And I love that about God. I love the way God gets to us the things that we need when we need them. You're having a hard day and you jump in the car and all of a sudden the first song that pops up on the radio is exactly what you needed to hear. What comes up on your Spotify is just what you needed to hear. Or, or maybe it's a billboard that you see. It might not be a Christian billboard, but the phrasing, of that's exactly the answer that you need. Uh, I've had God speak to me several times when I've been in movies and just the presence of the Lord just wash over me. It wasn't a Christian movie, but just in the movie and just having an experience and an encounter with God. I've even been in church services where the preacher said things that got my attention and that's what I needed to hear. It's even happened. It's even happened. Don't minimize the powerful gift that operates in your life. Tell somebody next to you, don't minimize your gift. Sometimes I got to hear it more than once. Tell somebody else, don't minimize your gift. 
Paul reminded Timothy of the unique spiritual gifts that had been imparted to him. But I think it's important for all of us not to underestimate the gift and the gifts that have been imparted to us. You see, once we've been born again, in addition to whatever grace and redemptive gifts God has uniquely imparted to us through the Holy Spirit, we are carriers of the capital G gift. We are carriers of the presence of Jesus himself. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being is in us. And we all live each day with an open door of opportunity as well as an open invitation to keep the life of Jesus and our other gifts stirred up and fanned into flame in such a way that they can't just quietly reside inside of us. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Timothy's grandmother couldn't do that for him. Timothy's mom couldn't do that for him. Even the apostle Paul couldn't do that for him. This was something that Timothy would have to do for himself, fanning into flame the gift of God. And that's the same for us. And there's coming a day when each one of us will have to give an account to God himself for what we've done with the gifts that we've been given. 1 Corinthians 3 says that all our work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light and it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And on that day, there will be rewards for the things that we've built and done with our gifts that last. And on that day, there will be mercy for us if the things that we've built and done with our gifts don't make it through the fire. What there won't be on that day is any room for excuses or justifications or the blame game. It'll be solely on us. Every gift we've been given is meant to be used and invested now by us for the furthering of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What we do or do not do matters now as well as on into eternity. The Holy Spirit prompted Timothy, uh, prompted Paul uh, to give Timothy and every reader since uh, an alarm clock-like wake-up call because life happens. You know, and as life happens to us, it's far too easy to lose focus and get distracted. Amen. Falling prey to or getting disillusioned by religious distortions is far too common. It's not even out of the ordinary to have times when we feel taken advantage of and used up. And sometimes in all our striving to do things for God, we actually burn ourselves out. Listen, partnership with God is a much better thing. Last week I talked about expectations and expectancy. Another thing I just can't get away from is the difference between doing things for God and doing things with God. The word says it every day, every day. God prepares in advance good works for us to do with him, not for him. The with him things, the with him things are more beneficial. The with him things are more rewarding. When we're doing things with him, we will not burn out. When we're doing things with him, the flame will keep burning. It's a completely different thing doing things with him rather than think, well, what should I do for him? No, do with him. Do with him. I want to keep encouraging us to embrace that lifestyle. Because when we 
do things for him, we can find ourselves in a place where it looks like our gifts and all that just have disappeared. And if ever, whenever, or however our gifts start looking like a pile of gray, lifeless ash to us. I mean, you look at your gifts and it's like, it's just, there's nothing there. That's the time to repent. That's the time to repent. And then, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, God. I'm looking at my gifts and it looks like there's nothing there, but I know that can't be true. I repent. Now, Holy Spirit, show me what you see. When you look at me and you look at my gifts, show me what you see in this pile of what looks like to me gray, lifeless ash. And when that happens, what we see is not lifeless ash, but we see embers that God in his mercy has kept slowly burning so we can fan them back into flame. Because you see, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And like we said last week, I'll say again this week, we have a God that loves to give us beauty for ashes. Now, we know this letter was specifically written to a real person, an established historical figure, a young man named Timothy. But in the wisdom and kindness of God, this letter was also preserved and included in the New Testament. And that makes every hearer and reader sense the ultimate target audience. The name Timothy means one who honors God. I was doing some more research on this overnight. One who honors God. But it comes from the combination of the words valued and esteemed to the highest degree by God himself. So we're all created to honor God, which is an overflow about how God feels about us. It's like we can honor God because he has honor in his heart towards us. It's like we can love him because he first loved us. And you see, God really does love us. Hey, he even likes us. But he also loves us too much to leave us like we are right now. Uh, several times in the past when we were in Fort Worth, we were blessed to have Kim Clement come to uh, minister at our church. How many of you have ever seen Kim Clement minister? Whew, so powerful. And uh, he and his band would be up there on the stage, and Kim would be playing away on the piano, and all of a sudden, Charlie would start thumping on the bass, boom, 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 and Kim would jump into, he's seen us in the future, and we look much better than we do right now. Except it'd be like, he's seen us in the future. And we look much better than we do right now. He's seen us. And all of a sudden, the whole room is jumping and moving. And I mean, just an amazing, amazing experience. And that gets inside of us that God has seen us in the future. And we look much better than we do right now. But he is consistently treating us and responding to us as if we're already in the future. Because he knows as he speaks into that, it calls us to that. One of the mistakes we make as parents sometimes is we spend so much time correcting our kids where we are, where they are, rather than calling, no, I know you. I know the destiny of your life. I know what you're called to. You can't live like this because this is what you're created to do. And we keep calling them up into that place and they step into that. And God, that's God. We, any, any parent that's done that knows that wasn't their idea first. That's God's idea because by his spirit, God is constantly wooing us into greater levels of maturity, greater levels of honor. And also greater levels of personal responsibility. But I want to play with that word a little bit. Sometimes when we hear the word personal responsibility, then it bounces back to, it's my job, it's my responsibility, it's what I have to do. I think the right understanding of personal responsibility is when God's drawing us, wooing us, he's seen us in the future, we look better than we do right now. He's increasing our personal response ability. 
it becomes quicker and easier to respond to him. It doesn't, he doesn't have to say it so many times to us. First time he said, just a glance and we're on it. He's increasing our ability to respond to him. That's what maturity looks like. When he says it, we do it. When he runs, we run. When he stops, he stops. When he stands, we stand. When he jumps, we jump. And the more mature we are, the faster and consistently we move with him like that. Verse seven. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. As we respond to God's wake-up calls and participate in fanning our gifts into flame, there will be at least two things that try to come against us. And the first one is timidity. The spirit of timidity comes against the revelation that we are created to honor the God who values and esteems us to the highest degree. That revelation is a foundational key to maintaining steadfast faithfulness. We're some of those that Zephaniah wrote about. Do not fear. Do not let your hands hang limp. Throw up your hands and praise again. No, that's not what it said. That was, that was the song we sang this morning. Do not fear. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. You've got a lion inside of you. He will take great delight in you. He'll quiet you in his love, but he will rejoice and spin wildly about over you with singing. Is that how you see yourself in relationship with God right now? You see, if there's anything inside of us that resists that, that he takes great delight in me. He quiets me in his love. He's rejoicing and spinning and singing over me. If there's anything inside of us that resists that, and wherever we allow that resistance to remain in us, we are giving legal access to the spirit of timidity. And the fruit of that decision is fear, faithlessness, low self-confidence, a lack of courage. Sometimes we go after the fruit, but if you want to get, get rid of it, you got to get to the root. And the root of fear and faithlessness and low self-confidence and lack of courage is a spirit of timidity. And those things that come with the spirit of timidity work together to suppress and extinguish the use of our gifts. They make us shy about our gifts, shy to express them, shy to even uh, confess that they uh, exist in us, shy to use them. But timidity is a liar, and the spirit of timidity is a deception. The spirit of timidity causes us to look away from and lose focus on our true identity in God. As I was working on that this week, just digging into this, all of a sudden, here's the thought that I had about timidity that I had never had before. The spirit of timidity comes against our identity as Timothy. Timidity comes against Timothy. Timidity comes to us and says, you're not honored, you're not highly esteemed, and you won't honor God. To which we got to say, uh, no, excuse me, that is who I am and that is what I'm going to do. Timidity, timidity comes against the revelation of our Timothy status with God. And the spirit of timidity is a real foe, but it's a counterfeit influence. Now listen, caution, caution is a God-given alertness, wisdom, and prudence in hazardous situations. But that's a totally different thing than timidity. And recognizing that the spirit of timidity is not from God is an important revelation to grasp firmly and not let go. And beyond that, let's declare this full truth and revelation of 2 Timothy 1.7 together. 
For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. We read this together last night, and I felt like, and I do it in this one. We need to stand up when we say this. We, you, can't ju- you can't just declare this sitting down. We need to stand up. This is the word of God, and we need to stand up and honor it and speak it. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. One more time. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You can be seated. You can be seated. I got a few more to go. Verse 8. Verse 8. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The second thing that can come against us is shame. Timothy was also being confronted by a spirit of shame, and he was trying to shut down his confidence in testifying and declaring the gospel message of Jesus. It was also trying to uh, under, uh, or undermine Timothy's confidence in Paul, who was in prison when he wrote him this letter. A spirit of shame was trying to discredit Paul's life and example in Timothy's mind. And he was trying to get Timothy to doubt his own legacy of sincere faith, as well as the giftings that had been imparted to him. The end goal of shame was to silence Timothy's witness. And that's what shame still tries to do to us today. The definition of shame is a painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, or ridiculous done by ourselves or done to us by another person. Shame is the slime that goes with sin. It's the residue of willful disobedience. It thrives in places of woundedness and brokenness, creates feelings of worthlessness, unacceptability, even illegitimacy. Shame makes us feel murky on the inside. And shame causes us to become disoriented and disillusioned. It's one of the devil's favorite tools. Shame traffics in condemnation. And that's what makes it so different than the conviction that comes with guilt. Guilt says, I made a mistake. I did it. I made a mistake. But shame is a more personalized attack. And its influence causes us to think, I'm a mistake. I'm a mistake, and there's nothing that can change that. When we give shame a place in us, it will work to isolate us away from other people and away from our awareness of God's presence in us. The I don't belong thoughts are usually not verbalized, but if we keep believing shame's messaging, we empower shame to cut us off from life-giving relationship with God and other people. Now, obviously, All of that is extremely counterproductive to moving freely and confidently in our faith and in our gifts. But here's good news. Shame is a choice. Shame is a choice. And as such, by God's grace, through a a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline, we can make a better choice. Psalm 25 begins, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope in you will ever be put to shame. Psalm 31 begins, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Psalm 34, 4 and 5 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him 
are radiant and their faces are never covered with shame. From Isaiah 50, verse 7, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Do not be ashamed to testify about the Lord or about me. Join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The King James Version says, be a partaker in the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And with that challenge, Paul exposed one of shame's biggest lies. Shame tries to convince us the Christian life should be perfectly neat with no mistakes. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus has already paid for all our mess and our mistakes. That's the good news of the gospel. All our mess, all our mistakes, already paid for. When Jesus shed his blood, that was it. When he said, it is finished, that means it is finished. It paid for it all. His blood is enough. His blood is enough. So we don't need to be embarrassed about the afflictions. They're a built-in part of the unfolding, perfecting holiness process. And we can be sure of this, that God's not finished with any of us yet. Our story's not over yet. We don't have to have all the theological answers about the testimony of our Lord before we testify about the goodness of God. We don't even have to have all our ducks in a row. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of victories, we can proclaim what God has done and is doing for us, in us, and through us. And we can celebrate that his power is being made perfect in our weakness. We're all in process. Only God can heal and clean us up. And as we practice repentance, we receive the forgiveness and the cleansing we need, and that disarms shame. Again, back to verse 8. So don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He saved us. That saved is the Greek word sozo. Saved, delivered, healed, protected, preserved, and made whole. Saved starts with a moment. Starts with a moment. Right now this morning, you either are saved or you're not saved. If you don't know, you're not Starts with a moment, starts with a moment, but then it continues on as a relational journey and experience with God. Saved, delivered. Now, one dimension of delivered is completely freed from the power of sin. That's part of the salvation. That's part of what comes with the package. We can be completely freed from the power of sin. But as I was thinking about delivered this week, the thought that came to mind was UPS and FedEx. Proverbs 16, 9, within our hearts, we plan our course, but the Lord directs our steps. And I've found at this point in my journey of working out my salvation, that God has an amazing creative ability to deliver me where I need to be, when I need to be there, on time, every time. Amen. Saved, delivered, healed, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. Physically protected, not trouble free, but always more covered and shielded than we realize. 
by a God who loves us, who goes before us, and whose mercy triumphs over judgment. Preserved. One thing that so blesses me about our fellowship here at Impact is we have a number of, uh, and I, I was going to say y'all, but now that I'm over 60, us, who've been on the planet quite a while, and, and we're still bearing fruit in our old age. You know, it's one thing when you're young and everything's popping and going, and you're bearing fruit, but we are so blessed to have uh, such, so a rich, rich mixture of people in our fellowship who've walked with the Lord a long time. And when you look at their life, you can still be inspired by their story and inspired by what God's doing in them. And they're not just sitting on some rocking chair waiting for Jesus to come back. They're still after it. They're praying, they're witnessing, they're sharing, they're doing the stuff. And as we see them, it just calls us forward into all of that. That's part of preserved. Uh, the salvation isn't just for the moment. It's an ongoing work that as long as we're on the planet, he keeps working in our lives. That's part of preserved. But I got to tell you another part of preserved. There can be times when it's like we are ripe and we're ready to step into something. And then it just seems like we get bottled up and canned and set on the shelf. We were ready. We thought we were ready. Everything was in place. But then there wasn't the release. And it's just like we're sitting on the shelf. What I'll tell you about that is trust God's timing. Trust God's timing. Because he makes everything beautiful in his time. He knows the end from the beginning, and timing is everything in the kingdom. So if you feel like you were rip-roaring, ready to go, and you're just stuck on the shelf, don't waste your time on the shelf grumbling and complaining about being on the shelf. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're preparing me. There's coming a day where you're going to open a door that no man can shut. And when that door opens, I'm going through that door. And I'm going to be using my gifts, and I'm going to be flowing in my gifts. And I trust the timing and I trust the favor of the Lord to open up that place and to get me where I need to be, when I need to be, right on time. Saved, delivered, healed, protected, preserved, and made whole, spirit, soul, and body. It's just a reminder of God's tenacious patience, persistence, faithfulness. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to bring it completion. He gets something started in us. He doesn't stop until it's done. There's a song on the radio right now that says, if it's not good, he's not done with it yet. You know, hadn't got to good yet. He's not done with it yet. The salvation sozo part comes with a calling. He saved us and he called us to a holy life. This Greek word for called, it means to call aloud, but it actually means to call aloud by name. By name. I just love the individuality of God. Before we ever knew his name, he knew our name. And he still speaks to us and he calls us by name. And there's something powerful. It's not, when, it's not like, hey, you, or hey, brother, or hey, sister. But when he calls us by name, when he speaks our name, something different happens inside of us. And he calls us still by name. And this word called is also from the same base word as the word to hail, like in to hail a cab. And I was thinking about that. I just, I just felt so thankful for the many times and all the traffic crazy that goes on with life. How many times God shows up and goes, you, David, come here, David, come here. Where he calls us out. He gets our attention. He draws us to himself for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. He's right in the middle of our lives. He doesn't keep his distance from us. He doesn't leave us alone and he doesn't leave us alone. He's right there calling us out speaking to us day by day. We've been called to a holy life, not living holier than thou. We've been called to a holy life, set apart and sacred in this world, but not of it. 
called to a holy life that doesn't tolerate or excuse sin. Instead, we press on to take hold of that for which Jesus has taken hold of us, and we seek out and welcome the purifying of our perceptions and our choices without any fear of condemnation. Called to a holy life, to the most magnetic, real, irresistible kind of holiness modeled and demonstrated by Jesus. Called to a holy life, saturated with God's presence and mercy. This call to a holy life can also be translated as called to a most holy thing. It's an invitation into a Holy Spirit life where we regularly get to experience his indwelling power and presence and where our lives produce and express his fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But why? Why does God do it? And why do people like us get to respond and be part of it? In his letter to Titus, Paul wrote, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Here in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, he saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. My dad loved the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And although I appreciate many of the principles taught in the book, I believe a spirit-filled life is better lived out place-driven rather than purpose-driven. Purpose-driven pushes us towards works. Purpose-driven, I think, can run you full speed into religion. Place-driven roots and grounds us in God's perfect love. And it affirms our place of fellowship with God. Which was God's original purpose for humans since the very beginning in the book of Genesis? The grace part of because of his own purpose and grace has always been God's plan A. Ephesians 2.8 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. God's grace was in place and established before the beginning of time as we know it. And there's no plan B. A religious spirit always tries to make things more complicated than that. Paul knew Timothy was getting hammered by religious pressures from zealous people. So he reminded him and us to keep the faith by intentionally remembering what brought us to faith in the first place, which calls for us to regularly celebrate God's mercy and grace and love so that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and move in step with the Holy Spirit. We also have to stay engaged with the perfecting holiness discipleship process to keep the faith. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. A lot of times we want to take a shortcut. We want to just jump right to that verse. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But in order to know the truth, we have to hold to his teaching which makes us his real disciples, and then we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. Keeping the faith also involves us being salt and light in this world, so we have to resist the deceptive, isolating influences of timidity and shame. And part of that happens as we stay connected to the life-giving family and fellowship of believers. Keep the faith. One day Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves Take up their cross and follow me. 
That same day, that same conversation, Jesus ended with these thought-provoking words. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's stand together. Lord, we don't want to give any ground inside of us to anything, timidity, shame, anything that would cause us to be ashamed of you. We are so blessed to be loved by you. And in the midst of this broken, adulterous generation, there you are working in our lives, setting us apart as salt and light. And so we ask, Lord, that you would just keep drawing us to yourself. Keep, uh, keep us running in pursuit of you. Keep us fanning into flame the gifts that you've given us. Help us keep trusting your timing and your purpose to move with you, to move with you day after day after day into the good things you plan each day for us to do. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives. Thank you for the gifts that you've entrusted to us. Thank you for the unique things that each one of us can accomplish that's needed. There's things that we can do together that's powerful, but there are things that if we don't do it, it doesn't get done. And you made us that way. And so I pray, Lord, that we would continue to take hold of that for which you've taken hold of us individually, uniquely by name to do. And we would grow into being the fullest expression of who you've created us to be so that we can do the things that you've created us to do for your namesake and for your glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.